Good morning, church family. Happy Easter. Christ is risen. All right, if you're not familiar with that uh, little uh, call and response exchange that we do on Easter morning, then the leader or the pastor says, Christ is risen or he is risen. And then the, the response of you, the congregation, is he is risen indeed. And so even though I can't hear your response right now, uh, say it out, speak it out aloud uh, for the benefit of those around you. All right, here we go. He is risen. Amen. So as we enter into uh, this Easter Sunday, I have one question for you, and that is, how is your soul? How are you as you enter into this Easter morning? If you had to pick an emotion that best describes where you are at on this day, what would it be? And I'm not asking that rhetorically. I want you to actually uh, think of one. And if there's someone in the room there with you, then go ahead and and just share that uh, with one another. If you're on your own, maybe you can text it to someone else who you know is is watching. But what is an emotion that you come into this day uh, with this morning. Think about that. You know, if we've been a Christian for any length of time, then I think we might have a sense that there's a right answer to that question and that we should be feeling joy this morning. And certainly there is ample reason, good reason, to be feeling great joy this Easter morning because Jesus has conquered sin and death once for all, and in that we can rejoice. And yet, if we're really honest, I think for many of us, perhaps we come with a different emotion on our hearts uh, in this time this morning. I know that some of us come to this day still reeling from the recent loss of a dear loved one. And so grief and sorrow may be where our hearts are at on this day. Some of us come weary and exhausted, worn out, burnt out by a very, very heavy season that has been made even heavier by all the craziness of this past year. Some of us feel fearful or anxious or unsure of what is ahead or how we're going to make it through. Some of us come lonely or aimless, longing for connection, desperate for purpose. There are any number of things that we could be feeling as we come to this morning. And as we look at this familiar Easter sunrise story in Scripture, I want us to pay attention not just to the events that happened, but to the emotions that are present there. There was joy on that first Easter sunrise, but there were also other emotions. And I want us to think about how emotion actually played a role in the events that unfolded on that first Easter morning. And the main idea that I want us to walk away with this morning is that God has designed our emotions to drive us to him, to Jesus. And so whatever it is that you are experiencing and feeling this morning, let that drive you to Jesus. Come to Jesus with your emotions. Well, each of the gospel writers records different details of the Easter morning account. And this morning, we're going to focus on Matthew's account And so if you have a Bible in front of you, you can open up to Matthew chapter 28, 
And we're going to read the first 10 verses uh, here and look at the, the Easter sunrise uh, story there. So Matthew 28, uh, 1 through 10. And if you're able, would you rise with me as we honor God through the reading of his word? So Matthew 28, 1 through 10 says, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow, and for fear of him the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. Verse 8, so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Father, would you speak to our hearts this morning through your word, through this familiar story, and would you meet us in the emotions, the feelings, the experiences, the places where each one of us are at. We look to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The other gospel accounts in in Mark and in Luke tell us that when these ladies went to the tomb in the early morning, they took spices with them to anoint the body of Jesus. On Friday evening when he died, uh, the Sabbath was beginning at sundown, and so there was no time to properly anoint and prepare his body for burial. And so his body, his dead body, was placed in the tomb and simply covered with linen cloths. And then they rested on the Sabbath, and now this Sunday morning there was work to be done in finishing the burial process. But in this account, in Matthew 28, he doesn't mention that functional purpose at all for the ladies going to the tomb. He simply says that they went to see the tomb. And think about that wording. Before dawn, two ladies walk through the dark city to go see a tomb? If you are a lady, when is the last time you've gotten up before dawn and walked maybe with a friend alone through the darkness to a graveyard to go look at a tomb? I think that there's probably something more going on here than simply observing the tomb, the stone, the hole in the, the hill there where the, the cave is cut out. These women are grieving deeply. The one they love has just been killed horrifically. There is shock and horror that is starting to sink in over Jesus' death. Perhaps they have not slept much the past couple nights. Their minds just keep replaying the horrific events of all that they have witnessed. 
And what they're longing for more than anything is simply to be with their dear friend and teacher, Jesus. But he's dead now. And so if you put yourself in their situation, if you've been tossing and turning all night, sleeping only in fits and starts, and at at some point you just kind of decide, forget it. I'm just going to get up. It's not worth trying to sleep. And for these ladies, since they know now the Sabbath is over, their first thought is, well, let's, let's go to the tomb. Not to admire the big stone or to view the grave, but to be as close as possible to the one they love who is in that tomb, or so they thought. Most likely, they are at the same time bringing those spices to finish the, the embalming process, but even so, their focus emotionally is simply to be near the one they love. That is why any of us go to a graveside as well, right? There's just this longing to be near to the one we love. And so we could see this as two very industrious ladies who set their alarms to wake before dawn so that they can get their job done right away. But I think it seems much more likely that these are two grieving ladies who are restless, who are maybe even despondent. They aren't quite sure what else to do, and so they just decide to go to the tomb. And on the way, they aren't even sure who's going to roll away the stone, Mark tells us, but they just want to be there. So what is their initial emotion at the dawn on that first Easter? It seems like grief, maybe even despondency, is what would describe them at this point. And notice that whether it's being near Jesus or it's completing the task, whichever one of those is uppermost in their minds, either way, they are going fully expecting that Jesus is still dead in that tomb. This is clearly not depicting them going excitedly with the anticipation of, of a resurrected Jesus, right? They're, they're dejectedly going with the full expectation of seeing only a dead body. And so these two grieving women arrive at the tomb, and, and then what happens? Matthew is the only gospel to mention this earthquake, and the words, and behold, seem to indicate that the earthquake happened suddenly right then and there, and the combination of earthquake and angels appearing and the stone being rolled away from the entrance of the tomb was just utterly terrifying. Now, if you ever hear someone trying to discredit Jesus' resurrection by saying, ah, it's just based on the stories of a couple scared women, Matthew 28 would be the great place uh, to take them here and show them that the women in this account actually fared much better than the men. The guards that verse 4 speak of here are most likely Roman soldiers. And so these are not just any men. Certainly these are not just, you know, college-age guys trying to earn some quick summer cash and they have no idea what's going on, right? But these are trained soldiers. They're disciplined. They're battle-hardened. They've seen many kinds of conflict. But what happens to them at the appearance of this angel? They are so freaked out by the inexplicable things that are happening, by the power and the glory of this angelic being, that they physically tremble, the text says. Their knees are knocking with fear, and even more than that, they faint dead away and fall over. 
they are beholding a power so far greater than anything that they have ever experienced in their military service that they simply faint dead away. Well, we know that the ladies also are afraid because the angel says to them, do not be afraid. But apparently they are not as utterly terrified as the guards because they do not fall over in a dead faint like the men do. But what might characterize their fear, the ladies' fear? Certainly they also would feel uh, some level of terror like those guards did at just the glory and the power of this heavenly being. But for them also, there must be some level of just shock at the, the unexpected turn of events that suddenly happens and a ton of questions going through their mind. What does this mean? And then with that, questions might come up of, is this, is this okay? What actually happened to Jesus? If this angel is telling us he's not here, then was there foul play? Did someone steal him? What is going on? And then maybe the inward-turning fear of, are we even safe here? What, what about the whole group of disciples? Are we in danger because something has happened, something has gone wrong here? There are likely very, uh, very many layers to the fear that they are experiencing. Well, the angel tells the ladies that Jesus is risen, shows them the place where his dead body had laid. Then the angel tells them to go quickly, to tell Jesus' disciples that he is risen, that they will see him in Galilee. And if an angel is terrifying enough to make soldiers faint with fear, then when he says to do something, I think you tend not to argue, but simply to go and not delay and so it says, verse 8, that they departed quickly. They ran to tell the disciples. Something I'm sure that we've all experienced with emotions is that we cannot simply command our emotions, or anyone else's emotions for that matter, but they simply come to the surface with whatever it is that we are facing. And so notice that even though the angel has told these women, do not be afraid, Yet as they run from the tomb, what does verse 8 say? They departed quickly with fear. Fear is still very much present in them, but now there is also something else. What else does it say there? It says fear and great joy. Their fear is now mixed with joy. They still don't understand what is happening. There's still a million questions jumbled up in their heads. Their hearts are still racing with the shock and the fear of this encounter with an angel. But now another emotion starts stealing in as well. There's a thrill of, of hope, a stab of joy. Could this actually be true? If Jesus is, is risen, alive, Oh, joy, joy unspeakable. This, this is not just a slight joy. This is great joy. And then we come to verse 9. It says, and behold. In verse 2, we saw that same phrase, and behold, uh, before the earthquake there, meaning suddenly, out of the blue, something unexpected happens. In verse 2, it was the earthquake, and now in verse 9, it's even better. And behold, Jesus. Jesus meets them. In their frightened rush to obey the angel's command to go tell the disciples, they're pulled up short by a man in front of them 
wait, a, a familiar man, a, a smiling face that they know. Could it really be? It is. It's Jesus. I wonder what kind of expression was on Jesus' face as he says to them, greetings. I kind of think there would have almost been a playful twinkle in his eye because after all, this is a wonderful surprise for them. I remember walking up that arrivals ramp in Tom Bradley Airport, uh, coming back from China with my family and our adopted daughter, Anna, and the Chua family as well with Hannah, knowing that there would be a handful of evergreen friends waiting to welcome us home. But then as we got to the top of that ramp, I looked across that big uh, open area, security area. There was my sister. And wait, no, both my sisters and my mom were there. And my sister had come all the way down from Oregon with my mom simply to welcome us home. And she definitely looked at me with that twinkle in her eye and was like, hey, here I am. And I was just totally blessed to, uh, to see her there because it was completely unexpected. I did not think uh, that they would be there. So perhaps Jesus also had some fun with this encounter also, seeing the look first of shock and then of dawning delight and great joy. And what did the women do? It says they came to him. I don't know if they moved slowly, almost in a daze, or if they kind of rushed at him, almost knocking him over. Maybe that doesn't matter because the, the important thing is that they came. They came to Jesus. They took hold of his feet, a posture of worship and submission. And then it says they worshiped him. Now, worship is not an emotion. Worship is not what they felt in that moment. It's an action. It's what they did. And so think about what it is that they're doing here when it says that they worshiped him. Are they singing songs to Jesus? Well, maybe they could have been, but the text doesn't really give us any indication of song. Are they awestruck in wonder and amazement? Maybe. It does seem like Fear enters in again because Jesus tells them again not to be afraid. But I think what this picture is best is adoration, right? Adoration. What are they doing? They're adoring this man whom they love, whom they thought was lost. They had, had lost him. Now he's back. Their hearts are so full of love and delight, and it just spills over in this act of adoration, What a beautiful picture of what worship is meant to be. In John's account of this, Jesus tells Mary not to cling to him. And that perhaps is what this is also picturing. Not only are they taking hold of Jesus' feet in worship and adoration of him, but also somewhat clinging in just relief and and joy. Like a mother who might lose sight of her child momentarily in a, in a uh, crowded outdoor area and she's looking all over and cannot uh, lay eyes on him. And then a uh, rascally boy that he is sneaks up behind her and says, hi, mom. And what does she do? She just holds on to him, right? She clings on to him. Oh, I thought you were gone. I c- couldn't find you, right? And so I think there is this immense relief mixed in with the adoration and joy for these women, 
And yet, somehow, even in that, fear still enters in because Jesus says to them again in verse 10, do not be afraid. Perhaps their fear at this point is is different, though. Maybe it's the fear that comes with something so wonderful like this. Am I just imagining this? Is this for real? Am I going to wake up and it was just a dream? I want so much for this to be true, but I also don't want it to be taken away from me again if it isn't true. And so... There was fear there in their hearts. Well, by Jesus' appearance he, to them, he had interrupted the mission that the angels had given to them to, to go tell his disciples. Now Jesus repeats that mission. He sends them off again, go and tell. But this time he uses the very familial, friendly term, my brothers, not just his disciples, but go tell my brothers that I am alive. So what emotions have we seen in this story? It has moved from grief and despondency all the way through to relief and exhilaration. From great sorrow to great joy. Fear has kind of threaded through the whole story. Fear with many different layers and reasons. And then there's delight and adoration toward this one they love so deeply. Many emotions here. But think, too, about how they have responded to their emotions. Despondency and grief are emotions that easily keep people in bed, right? Immobilized, depressed, stuck. And yet they, these two ladies, are not immobilized by their grief. Instead, their grief pushes them actually to come to Jesus, even though What they're picturing is that they're coming to uh, be near him in his grave, yet there's still a movement toward him and not inward toward themselves. Fear also could easily push them to run away, to hide, to protect themselves. But they did not run and hide. They stayed engaged. Their fear moved them toward Jesus, toward others in obedience to God. Emotions are part of God's good design for us. Emotions are part of the image of God in us. And emotions are meant to push us toward God. We get in trouble on either extreme, either when we make emotions everything, when we're run by our emotions, overrun by our emotions, but we also get in trouble when we try to squelch our emotions altogether and pretend that they don't exist. But when we engage our emotions and let the things that we feel push us toward God, then emotions are really a very wonderful gift from our Maker. Alistair Groves, the executive director of Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation, has written a book uh, called Untangling Emotions. And in there he says, engaging our emotions without engaging God is a recipe for disaster. Engaging our emotions without engaging God is a recipe for disaster. So I came, come back to the question that I started with. How is your soul this morning? What is the emotion that you are experiencing as you come to this day? And then how are you responding? Are you letting that emotion that you are feeling drive you to Jesus? 
If you've experienced loss in some way, grief and sorrow is what you're feeling this morning, then come to Jesus with your grief and with your sorrow. And that doesn't mean that you have to resolve your grief and then come to Jesus with a happy face. It doesn't mean that you have to set aside your sorrow in order to come. No, come with your sorrow. Bring your grief. Bring all that is sad and hopeless and wrong. Bring that to Jesus, but come to him. Maybe your grief has been long. Maybe you have a chronic illness or pain. Maybe you're caring for someone in need. You're caring for someone who is very needy. And then perhaps you feel this morning is is a sense of despondency, a sense of despair, of hopelessness. And so again, bring that to Jesus. Come to him with all the unanswered questions, the shattered hopes. Come with your despair, but come. If fear is the dominant feeling for you today, maybe fear of something that you're not sure you can handle, fear that a certain longing will remain unmet, fear of the worst happening to you or to someone you love, fear of sickness or disease or death. Whatever fear is in your heart, let it drive you to Jesus. You don't have to pretend that it will all be okay. And in fact, it may not be okay. But come, bring your fear to Jesus. If you feel pressured, stressed, unmotivated, bored, nervous, anxious, insecure, exhausted, angry, betrayed, invalidated, hurt, alone. Just come. Come to Jesus with these emotions. Let the things that you feel drive you to Jesus and come. There's a wonderful passage in Hebrews 4 and 5 which shows us the heart of Jesus and gives us great confidence and reason to come to Jesus with all that we are experiencing and feeling. Hebrews 4, verse 14 through 5, verse 2 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness." two amazing truths that we see here about the heart of Jesus, which makes him a high priest who is approachable, one to whom we can come with whatever we are feeling or facing. The first we see in verse 15, that Jesus sympathizes with our weakness. Jesus is able to sympathize. And the Greek word that's translated sympathize there has has a much greater depth of meaning than our English word sympathy. In English, sympathy is somewhat detached sometimes, right? We express our sympathy to someone, but we may have no idea what they're actually going through. And that's kind of the key difference. It's they are going through something, we are not, 
and we kind of look in from the outside and say, I'm, I'm sorry that that's happening to you. And generally, that's what we mean with sympathize. But this Greek word is actually a compound word. The first part, the prefix, means with or, or co, like co-worker or co-pilot, right? Comorbidity is a word we've been using a lot. And then the second part of the, the word is, is the verb to suffer. So literally, it means co-suffer, to suffer with someone. And that's very different. That's much deeper. Jesus' sympathizing doesn't mean that he's kind of looking in from the outside, nodding compassionately and saying, it'll be okay. When Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses, it means that Jesus co-suffers with us. He enters into our actual weakness, to our actual pain. He feels the same thing. Therefore, it's not just that he knows what we're going through because he's God and he knows everything. No, he knows, he really knows, he experientially knows because he has put on human flesh. He has lived as a man in our world. He co-suffers with us. He has felt grief and sorrow and loss. He has faced despondency. He's been tempted to despair. He has felt the fear of the unknown. He has suffered bodily hunger and thirst and weariness and pain. He's been rejected and betrayed and scoffed at and alone. He sympathizes with us, not from afar, but by entering into our actual pain and suffering with us. And so since that is truly Jesus' heart toward us, then verse 16 of Hebrews 4 says, Of course, we will draw near with confidence to his throne of grace to find mercy and help in our time of need. And so come, come to that throne of mercy and grace. Don't try to pretty yourself up and work out your problems. Just come with your pain, with your sorrow, with your fear to Jesus. He sympathizes. The second place, quickly, that uh, we see here that is so significant is verse 2 of chapter 5 in Hebrews, where it says that he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. In that verse, the direct reference is to the human high priest, but in the passage as a whole, Jesus is the primary focus as the great high priest. And so the implication is that if even the human high priest can and does deal gently then certainly Jesus, as the great high priest, does as well. And again, this Greek word, deal gently, is, is very fascinating. One commentator defines it this way. It is finding the mean, the balance, between indifference on the one hand and extreme feelings, especially of anger or grief, on the other hand. So it's the happy medium between indifference and anger, between giving up, and blowing up. It's a word of restraint or moderation in in both directions. And that is Jesus' heart toward us. He does not give up on us, nor does he blow up toward us, and therefore it is safe to come to him. This is Jesus' heart toward you, toward me, toward all of those who belong to him. He suffers with us. He deals gently with our waywardness and ignorance. Therefore, come. Bring your emotions, bring your troubles, bring your pain, bring all of you, and come to him this Easter morning.
Mary Magdalene and the other Mary moved toward Jesus in their grief, in their despondency, in their fears. They did so even while believing he was dead in that tomb. But Jesus met them alive and turned their sorrow into joy. We live on the other side of that first resurrection Sunday. So we know for certain from the get-go that Jesus is alive. And we know his heart toward us, that he co-suffers with us. He deals gently with our ignorance and waywardness. And so then there is no reason why we would not come to him with all our emotions, especially on this Easter morning. And so as we close here, I want you to take a moment right now and simply to pray this simple prayer as a way of directing your heart to Jesus. Jesus, I come to you. And then you fill in whatever emotion, whatever uh, experience you've been thinking of during uh, this service. Jesus, I come to you with, pray that to him. So Jesus, we come. We come with all that we are experiencing with the griefs as well as the joys, the fears as well as the exhilaration. Lord, we come. And God, I pray for each one of us here. I know that we have faced many things that are hard, that are difficult in this past year. And so, Lord, I pray that we would indeed allow those things to drive us to you not merely inward to ourselves, not merely outward to vent to other people, but Lord, may they drive us to you. May we bring these things to you and find you to be the one who truly sympathizes, who truly deals gently with us in all of our pain. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you are alive and that our trust can be in you We rejoice this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.